Welcome to today's episode of MD Talk. I'm your host, LaQuinta Jernigan, and I am very lucky to be joined by my colleague and co-host, Sara Val, Regional Sales Director of the Americas at MD Group. We are incredibly excited to welcome our guest for today's episode, Dr. Christine Roy McMahon, OBGYN attending at Elmhurst Hospital in New York. Christine has a major in neurobiology from the Florida International University Herbert Wytham College of Medicine, and she is passionate about preventative women's health care and equity of care with a subspecialism in benign gynecological surgery, particularly minimally invasive techniques. She has been recognized by both her medical students and residents as an outstanding educator. Welcome, Christine. Hi. Hi, LaQuinta. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So happy to be here and looking forward to talking about women's health issues and how that pertains to research today. Just to give you a little bit more background about myself, like you said, I'm a full-time attending physician at Elmhurst Hospital in New York, which is one of our main city hospitals. I primarily take care of uninsured, underinsured, and underrepresented minorities and am passionate about working on equity of care and access for those groups. Awesome. And, you know, today we're here to talk about disparities in women's health care and, and diversity and things of that nature. But I will say, maybe on a separate show, I'd love to just sit down and talk to you only about new treatments for removing fibroids, because especially since you have the um, kind of interest in minimally invasive techniques, there's a lot of conversation ongoing, especially in the Black community amongst women, about some of those minimally invasive techniques for removing uterine fibroids. So that can be for another day, but something I'm very, very interested interested in and would love to pick your brain about. But for today's podcast, before we dive into how we can address disparities in women's health access and care, I think it's important that we kind of look at what the situation is today. Um, Because when we look closely at what's going on, um, especially here in America, but also on a global scale, it is quite uh, surprising. So reports show that Black women in the United States are more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth than women in any other race group. And this is true across pretty much all socioeconomic levels, um, which I think is one of the most interesting things. I mean, we've seen celebrities like Serena Williams speak out about the issues that she had, the scares that she had in delivering her child. Um, I've personally experienced healthcare scares with the, uh, the birth of my children that were undiagnosed and not really looked at on a close level. So this is something that is alarming because again, there are real, there really aren't any socioeconomic um, definitions around why this is happening. And according to a 2014 report in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, black women experience higher rates of unintended pregnancies than all other racial groups in part because of disparities in access to quality contraceptive care and counseling. Um, And again, this is something that doesn't just affect black women, but we also know that this is something that goes across other minority populations. So this is something that's prevalent within amongst Native Americans. Um, And even more recently, we've seen an uptick of this in Hispanics. And then, of course, in several Asian subgroups. Um, And then I think this is another one that really sticks out to me. Um, a 2011 study that was published in the National Library of Medicine found that healthcare access among Hispanics is stratified along lines of immigrant legal status with the undocumented particularly vulnerable to low levels of prenatal care utilization. Um, and I know that when we first started talking about putting this podcast together, we addressed this issue and just the um, the situation that, that 
is very unique to immigrants that come to this country um, and the lack of understanding and knowledge of what rights they do have to health care and to preventative care and how that impacts their overall gynecological health and the outcome of these pregnancies. So with that being said, there's a lot we can dive into. Um, a lot of issues and situations within these minority groups. Um, and so I want us to just kick off starting this discussion on how we can address these issues. And then from your perspective, Christine, and, and the work that you do every day, what you see are some of the biggest challenges and then what you see are some of the solutions to those challenges. Um, so with that, Sara, my lovely co-host, I'm going to hand it over to you to kick us off. Perfect. Thank you. And this is a topic I think very near and dear to at least 50% of the population at this point. So I'm really excited to get Christine's perspective, who works with this every single day, brings life into the world, but also sees a lot of the struggles and challenges that women face on a daily basis from all different backgrounds and all different makeups and different attitudes towards medicine. So we can dive right in, in that case. Um, so in your perspective and in your experience, um, how would you say that access to prenatal and maternal care are impacted by race, culture, socioeconomic status, and really any of the different diverse groups that you treat on a daily basis? So it's really, I mean, it's a very complex issue. Um, but if we look at sort of race, culture, and socioeconomic status, these are all things that we call social determinants of health. And teasing one out from the other is almost impossible, right? The way that you are, your race influences your culture, your culture influences the way that you interact with the world, and all of that influences your socioeconomic status as well. Um, when we look particularly at immigrant populations, the, one of the biggest barriers to care is access, um, and that can be defined as both ability to present to care due to external stressors such as time management, childcare obligations, needing to provide for their families, needing to work certain hours that are not amenable to them taking time off for doctor's visits, things like that. But it also goes down to um, can be part of an educational issue, right? So a lot of women who are immigrants don't necessarily understand the American healthcare system. Frankly, I barely understand the American healthcare system and I work in it. So it's a very tough system to navigate and they often don't know what care they have available to them, how to get registered for care, how to provide that care for themselves and how to um, take that sort of autonomy for their own care. One of the biggest things that I think that we can do is really educate these women on the resources that are available in our communities. Um, so I don't know, Sarif, have you ever uh, been on the subway recently? Definitely. Definitely. So there's actually a really big campaign that the NYC HHC system is doing about access to care. And there are multiple subway ads across all the different trains in mostly Spanish, Haitian, um, Cre Haitian Creole, and a few in Chinese and other different languages that are strategically placed to kind of educate people on the systems that are currently in place in New York and how to register for care within these hospital systems. So definitely a first step. I think that's really interesting and a very important campaign because just from doing my own research, sometimes I find out that there are there are options and affordable options for care available to a lot of different underrepresented groups, be it uninsured or even potentially undocumented, which is a very 
it's a significant portion of the population, particularly in New York, that often does get overlooked. And when finding, when doing independent research, I find out that there actually are options available, but they're not typically educated to the community as such. So I think different types of campaigns like, like this one are incredibly important. Yeah. And I think we need to look at these campaigns on a wider scale too, because, um, you know, personally, I, I agree with you, the American health um, system or insurance system is very convoluted. Um, and people who are not immigrants struggle. Um, and I, I'll be honest, you know, we have the the privilege of having guidance, you know, because, you know, we work in, we work for organizations that provide a healthcare plan. And so we're able to get full understanding of what it means, what's available to us. Um, but other people don't know where to even start. So like you've done your independent research, Sara, but, you know, a lot of people don't know where to start. And there is this perception, and it's not an incorrect perception that healthcare is expensive. We don't have nationally funded healthcare here in the United States. And so the perception is it's expensive. And there are so many campaigns. I actually saw one, the, an ad the other day that shows like, this is what it costs to give birth in America. I feel like you can stumble upon those campaigns far more than you can the campaigns that you're talking about on the subway. So imagine what you must feel like as an immigrant who, you know, has very little resources financially. You come across that campaign and you think, okay, I'm not going to step foot in a doctor's office. I don't have thirty thousand dollars to 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 give. And if I if I go, they're going to build this for me, and then they're going to come after me, and they're going to come after my house. And I'm, you know, so it is very scary. Um, and I think that we need to kind of address that misconception on a on a national scale because, you know, if that's working in New York, and I'm sure, you know, data will show, I mean, that's something that we need to look at all across the board. Because otherwise, like I said, it's easier to come across scare campaigns about how much it costs than it is to come across campaigns that say, do you know that this is this is what's available to you free of charge? Um, so I'm I'm really excited to hear that you guys have that going on yeah, in New absolutely. York. Absolutely. I, I do think one of the one things that's nice about being both an obstetrician and a gynecologist is that I get the opportunity to kind of reach out to women at different aspects of their life. So particularly in New York and many other states in the U.S., um, pregnancy and the immediate postpartum period is one of the few times where you're covered by Medicaid regardless of your income or other insurance status. So it presents an opportunity to kind of hook people into these care systems that they otherwise might not know about. So in my own personal practice, I definitely have patients who I encounter during their prenatal course and their delivery course, who I'm then able to personally educate on the resources that exist for GYN care within these public hospital systems and make sure that they're able to come back to me, not only to get preventative GYN healthcare, but also then to get hooked into primary care, cardiology, all the other services that they might need later in their life. Definitely. And I think something interesting you just touched on um, that I'd love to hear more about is for females in particular, would you say that gynecological care really is the first step that they take in their overall preventative health? Um, and does that differ in terms of attitude by different demographics in your experience? I would definitely say gynecologic care is for women one of the first thing that they think of when they think of preventative health, right? Growing up, we all learn like we have to go see the gynecologist once we become a certain age or there's reasons that you might want to go that are personal, such as birth control or heavy periods, very common complaints that require women to present to care earlier in their life that they might otherwise. Um, I will absolutely say that 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 perception and that education around gynecologic care does differ 
across demographics and sort of across different cultures. I encounter a lot of women in my practice who may not know that it's not normal to have a period so heavy that you're anemic every single month, right? Or that you don't have to live that way, right? That medicine and gynecologic care can just be about modifying your life and not just about preventing things like cancer or dealing with pregnancy or other outcomes. So there's definitely a role for um, education for those women in that GYN care has a lot more to offer than just pregnancy and delivery. And I, I assume that, at least from from what I can see, that there are cultural implications, too, to, you know, how soon you start seeing a gynecologist. Because, you know, in some cultures, it's seen as something that you should not be doing until you're sexually active. Um, and if you're coming with a, from a culture that believes that you should not be sexually active until you're married, you could go, in some cases, you're, you know, 40 years. I mean, depending on, you know, what you're doing in life without seeing a gynecologist. And at that time, you know, there could be a whole onset of problems that have gone undetected. So, I mean, what are some of your thoughts about how to kind of tackle some of those issues that you, that are so embedded in culture and religion that are preventing women from seeking care? I think a lot about that is really just demystifying gynecologic care as a whole, right? Um, women's health is comprehensive health. It includes everything. It just should not be that GYN care is a stigmatized or sort of walled off separate area that you don't talk about. Um, it's part of your health as a whole human being, and it's just as important to care for as your cardiac health or your bone health or your mental health. Right? I think a lot of campaigns in public health are really focusing on how important it is to consider care as a whole. So a lot of that demystification, I think, will help. But I do think that that, that we, um, as women, as we grow and we kind of contribute more to society, we see that particularly patients who are no longer first-generation immigrants tend to present earlier to care because they've sort of grown up in a society where care is more discussed and gynecologic care and all of those things are more openly talked about. Um, one thing, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but absolutely sexual education programs in school are a big area where that could come in, um, that I think the U.S. is severely lacking in a comprehensive sexual education program, some states more than others, but that presents an opportunity very early in life to just teach women that this is about their health. It's not about sex or anything Regarding that, it's about making sure that you are a healthy human being. Yes, hands down. I, I have a 13-year-old daughter who is in middle school, and we had to sign off on their on permission for her to attend sexual health education, sex health education. And it is all about sex. And, you know, I want us to talk about the importance of your pelvic floor. And I want to talk about, like, you know, things to look out for as, you know, a, a black woman, you know, fibroids. There are so many things that, you know, all they talk about is sex and STDs. Now that is important, but I agree with you. There should be a lot more um, education, especially at a, at a younger age about women's health. Um, and a lot of that does fall on, on parents. And we, we know that there's probably a very large percent of a percentage of parents that aren't having conversations about your pelvic floor, for example, um, with their children. So I, I think that you're absolutely right about that. Definitely. And I think that actually segues into a very interesting and more frequent topic than I ever expected. And 
that is seeking specialized providers for specialized needs versus um, primary care providers or ones that are specialized in something else. And what I mean by that is I think because there is still some stigma or quite a bit that demands resolution and it will take time to get there through public health efforts that are being made, but I think a lot of women still um, may be seeing generalized providers for OBGYN needs, um, which leads us to the case of misdiagnosis and frequent misdiagnosis in no way to villainize male physicians or those that are general practitioners, but it is a common, very common item that we've discussed to date. So what is your experience with that type of misdiagnosis in women's health? Um, at what stage do you become made aware of it, and what factors do you feel like contribute to that? Misdiagnosis is unfortunately a common thing that occurs in all fields of medicine. However, I do think when we get into these sort of more stigmatized areas, it becomes a little bit more prevalent. And none of that is, again, as you said, to villainize any provider. But when a provider doesn't feel comfortable talking about issues relating gynecologic health, they're not going to know the appropriate questions to ask, and patients aren't going to feel comfortable providing that information. In my experience, that's the majority of the cases where misdiagnosis comes into play, is where a, a generalist provider who was not familiar with GYN pathology to begin with kind of comes up with an idea, and then this misdiagnosis gets perpetrated across a patient's lifetime, and by the time they finally present for comprehensive gynecologic care, we're sort of working backwards to undo that thread that's been woven, woven through their medical history. Um, absolutely, I think that happens frequently. GYN is a specialty that is complex and interplays with a lot of other, um, you know, medical conditions, but again, if there are some things like fibroids or ovarian masses or other abnormal uterine bleeding disorders that unless you're a gynecologist, you really don't spend a lot of time studying in medical school. And so it's hard to come up with those as part of your pathology and your differential later on when you're talking to patients. Yeah, and I've definitely, so I have a, um, I have a friend who has actually, we, we spoke about this. So the past two years, it, it only started two years ago, which is interesting. But whenever she would see her general practitioner, she started offering pap smears and other kind of gynecologic, like things that you would normally go to your GYN for. Um, and she would always decline them and say, you know, I have an OBGYN. But she thought it was really interesting that they start offering this and seeing if she wanted that type of care from her primary provider. Um, and I don't know if that has to do with the fact that, you know, there are some more um, coverage, you know, for health insurance. I think it was, I don't know if it was two years ago or three years ago, but they've increased, like, I guess the you don't have to have a pap smear every year, but you can still get covered. It's still covered in your insurance plan. So I don't know if that is why it's happening, but if it's if it's being asked of her every time she goes in, you can imagine that there's some people who will just say, sure, I'm here. Um, that's one less thing for me to do. But that does concern me um, because I, like you said, I mean, it is a very specialized um, field and I, I wouldn't be comfortable, um, you know, having my primary practitioner you know, give those types of diagnosis and look into those types of things. Yeah, I will say for most preventative health measures in terms of 
pap smears and even if we extend that to mammograms, other things, I think it's okay for primary care practitioners to be the ones performing that as long as they know when to refer that pathology out. Okay. I think that can be sort of a gap in the healthcare system that can sometimes cause problems is when a primary care practitioner is performing tests but then not necessarily understanding or following the appropriate referral protocols for when to escalate that care to a specialist. Otherwise, I think it's okay to do a basic screening test as long as you know what to do with the result. Um, The pap smear guidelines have changed a fair amount over the past 15, 20 years based on a lot of new data regarding the incidence of cervical cancer in the U.S. and progression risks. So that is something that as a specialty, we're still working to educate other medical specialties about those new recommendations. So that's something that's going to take a little bit of time as well. But definitely an area for improvement. Mm -hmm. However, I think the most important thing is to get your pap smear when and where you can, regardless of it's your primary care or your gynecologic doctor. Definitely. And actually, this conversation um, reminds me of a New York Times article published a couple of months ago that I read discussing the subjective perception of pain threshold in men versus women. Um, And it really was discussing the fact that generally from observation, subjectively, um, women will likely have a higher pain tolerance and feel, whether it be cultural based on their role in the family um, or really just based on biology, that they do seem to be taken less seriously when complaining of chronic pain, um, particularly in the gynecological space. And I was, this is just a food for thought, but curious if you've experienced um, conditions or patients that have come for treatment that could have been treated a lot sooner had they been either referred sooner, had their symptoms been taken more seriously, or if a diagnosis was correct, and um, how that affects your care plan when caught later in the stage. So I think, I mean, one example that comes to mind um, pretty readily is sort of patients with dysmenorrhea or extremely painful periods. So while that is a common complaint, there's sort of a threshold that I think gynecologists and maybe women and women physicians in general have of knowing what is a normal period and what is not a normal period, right? And one diagnosis that can commonly be missed with that complaint is endometriosis. So endometriosis typically causes these severely painful periods. However, if that's not diagnosed early, then women can suffer needlessly for years and then untreated endometriosis and uncontrolled endometriosis can later go on to affect their fertility planning and their family plans, requiring them to either need surgery if they develop ovarian masses or possibly assisted reproductive technology later on in life. So it's something that is definitely helpful to catch earlier on in the disease course so that way it can be managed more aggressively. And pain pain tolerance is something that we've talked about um, in previous um, podcasts with our uh, medical director, Dr. Art Lazarus. Um, You know, obviously, you know, like Sarah mentioned, for women, the perceived pain tolerance is higher sometimes, but it's also um, the case for for many Black people. Um, They are perceived to have a higher tolerance of pain, um, and that can often lead to a lot of problems. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how we, we had a meeting with our diversity committee, for example. This is going off a little bit of a tangent, but we brought this up in our diversity committee meeting. Um, just like a few months ago. And on that call, I think five women had examples, very serious examples of how their pain tolerance was um, 
not taking, their pain wasn't taken seriously um, that led to what could be near fatal outcomes. Um, and so I, I think that that's an issue that it's so complicated, complicated. Um, and I don't think we can unravel it. Um, and I, I think that it's, it's not even the case of, you know, well, a female physician will be able to catch it more than a male physician or a, a, a physician of color wouldn't have the same biases, you know, for a black patient as a physician, not of color, because it is so built and ingrained into everything that it, it crosses all of those gender and race lines. A black doctor could have the same you know, implicit biases against a black patient. Um, so I, I guess my question there for you, uh, Christine, is it seems like the impossible problem to solve. Um, what are some of your thoughts on how patients can advocate advocate for themselves better to prevent some of these things from happening or to um, make their voices louder in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. It is a very tough problem to solve because as you said, most of this is implicit bias. So no one is really aware that they're having this sort of colored experience, but it's very important to teach patients to advocate for themselves and to make sure that their voices are heard. I think one of the best things that patients can do for themselves is to write down their complaints and their questions before they go into a doctor's visit um, and use their own specific words to describe it. Because just like anyone else, right, under pressure, you're liable to forget what you came there for to begin with. I get up and walk out of my house and I can't remember why I did. You know, that happens to us all on a daily basis. And when you have a time pressure of, you know, your doctor has, you know, another patient, or maybe you were in a rush to get to your appointment, all the stresses of life can make that information just slip right out of our mind. So that's one thing that I think is super important that patients can do for themselves. Another thing that I think is really important is for patients to make sure that they have appropriate interpreter services when they're needed. So a lot of patients, particularly in the communities that I serve, they may speak English, but it may not be their primary language. And understanding medical information in your non-primary language is always more difficult, right? Even when we explain things in simple terms, it can be difficult for the comprehension aspect to be there. So I think patients should never hesitate to ask for those types of services when they need them. The other thing that I always tell my patients to do is to make sure that at the end of a visit, they feel comfortable repeating the instructions for whatever the care plan is back to their physician. So that way the physician both knows that they understand and they feel like they have gotten all of their questions answered. Those are kind of the three tips that I would say for all patients, regardless of what their complaint is. But like you mentioned, it's really just important for women to advocate for themselves I'm a doctor and we are care practitioners, but at the end of the day, patients know their bodies, right? They're the ones living in them every day and they may have an idea that's something that is not normal for them and it's important to keep trying to suss out whatever is going on until they feel comfortable with the answers. Yeah, and writing things down is probably the most simple tip, but the most important, because I don't do that when I go to the doctor, I don't write my notes down. And it's so easy when you get there to forget what that moment of pain really felt like. You knew it was painful, but when the doctor starts asking questions, you sometimes forget the intensity. Or sometimes the doctor can say, well, did it feel like X, Y, or Z? 
And without having written it, written it down, and you're right, all the other stressors that's going on at the moment, you're like, yeah, 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 I guess that's right. Um, but if you have, if you write it down at the time and you keep your notes in kind of a diary and bring that with you, then you're going to be able to recall exactly. So I think that even though that seems like the most obvious tip, um, it's probably one of those important ones. Definitely. I mean, I can personally attest to some sort of um, physician uh, muteness that happens to me when I when I visit a physician, regardless of how many I've spoken to outside of the clinical setting, um, in the professional setting. But there is some sort of stressor that really makes you suddenly feel a lot better when you're seeing your physician. And the moment you come home, you remember all of those symptoms that you've been dealing with on a weekly, monthly, chronic basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do wonder, um, with the undertone of diversity and the different cultural groups you see, I know that different cultural groups have a very different attitude and relationship communication with their physicians, be it out of a level of respect, potentially fear. Um, So what is your experience with that? And how do you feel that different cultures and diverse subgroups play into the role of the care that they're able to advocate for themselves for? So I think a, uh, a lot of this goes back to kind of not only access, but sort of trust and faith in the medical system. And I think we've talked about this before, but a lot of the minority subgroups for completely valid reasons don't necessarily see the medical system as being on their side, right? Particularly for black women, that goes back to historical issues in the U.S., such as the Tuskegee studies, right, which really seeded a lot of mistrust against the medical system. Um, But you're less likely as a human being to raise your concerns and talk about things that are of a very personal nature if you intrinsically don't trust the person that you're sitting across from. Um, So I definitely think with minority groups that plays a large role. I also think that for a lot of our cultural groups, there's sort of a, a different idea of what is normal or not, right? LaQuinta, you mentioned that, you know, fibroids are a big issue for um, black women across the U.S. And I think that a lot of my patients sometimes come in and they're like, oh, yes, of course I have fibroids. I have pain. I have heavy bleeding. They're like, yeah, but so does my sister and my mom and my cousin. So that's normal, right? It's not even worth bringing up because in their cultural group and in their families, they often see this. And so they think that it's just part of their normal life versus Mm -hmm. Other cultural groups where that's not such a prevalent issue will say, no, something is wrong. Like, my periods used to not be like this. I shouldn't have to live this way. And that's definitely something I see pretty frequently. Yeah. And I'll even take that a step further. And I think that this is probably what the last few years have taught us, that, like, if you take a poll of minorities, um, let's just say Black women, and, and you ask them about those historical events that were so horrible that has shaped trust for years... They won't even say that's the reason why they're mistrustful now. I mean, there are enough current events, I think, that are still plaguing us that we don't even have to go back, um, you know, decades and decades and decades ago where, um, you know, people were mistreated by the medical community. And, you know, they have also their personal experiences. And so I think that the trust issue, it's, it's, it's going to take a long time to fix um, and a lot of just very intentional um, change to happen. Um, And, you know, like personally, because of my personal experiences, 
um, with my, both of my, my pregnancies, like I have to, I feel like I have to constantly do my own research. I trust my doctor. I, I love my OB, um, GYN. She's amazing. But I do have that plague of thinking like, you know, if I hadn't raised my voice enough with my second pregnancy, you know, I may not even be here today. And so, you know, that there's that, that voice in my head, like you, you can't trust everything. You have to look it up. You have to do your research. And then when you hear other stories of these other people that come out and come forward about how they've had near death experiences because their voices weren't heard or they're misdiagnosed, it just feeds into that mistrust. So we have a lot of work. I think that, that we need to do, um, and, you know, with the fibroid, the fibroid thing, I mean, that is so true. And it's something that I'm so interested in because you're right. I think a lot of women just assume that there is not much you can do about it. And so they just kind of care, bear that cross silently or they're, you know, loud about it and they complain about it. And the diagnosis is that you have to have like a whole hysterectomy. <laughs> um, and so it goes from one extreme to the other, which means that you're going to be out for a while. That's a, that's a major surgery, time off of work, time to find childcare. So then you just kind of find yourself in this gray area where just like, it's no point. And so there, there's not a lot of education. I don't think out there, even about that um, one, one issue. Um, at least I know that in my my life. It's not anything that's been put in front of me until I've had to like ask about it for my own personal reasons. So um, it's just, it's a lot of work that we have to do, but I will say that I feel better about building those bridges to trust amongst minority groups now than I have ever before, because so many more people are talking about it. Um, so many more physicians are aware of it and like doing things to kind of build that trust and make it better and bringing in community leaders and things like that um, to really help with that building that bridge. So I do think that we're putting in the work now, um, finally, and I think we'll get there, but there's just a lot to do. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think one of the most positive things that's happened over the past five years in this sphere is that people are really cognizant of everything that's going on and really making an effort to work on health equity and work on building those bridges of trust and work on repairing our relationships with minority groups and making them feel represented represented in medicine and able to advocate for their own care. Definitely. I mean, I've absolutely noticed a shift towards diversity and equity in care just in the last four or five years, like you said. And it actually makes me wonder from a more academic standpoint, um, when you were going through education and through your training, was there an emphasis at that time on diversity in terms of the data you were presented, um, potentially patient reported outcomes and how they differed, or even just any mention of that? Or was it mostly focused on rigorous academic training, if you will? There was definitely plenty of rigorous academic <laughs> training, um, but uh, my medical school actually did focus a lot on community health and sort of equity and access to care. So we did a lot of projects looking at community outreach and patient reported experiences, which is probably where sort of my interest in this sphere kind of stemmed. Um, but I know that that was not typical of many medical schools at the time. However, I do now think that it's a required portion of all curriculums in medical schools these days. Well, that's good to hear. Um, and, you know, I think that that kind of segues really nicely into clinical research because, you know, now we have the support of the FDA now to start actually including racial demographics in the research. And a lot of companies are setting goals to make sure that diversity is well embedded in their 
their plan and their strategy for their clinical trials. Um, Christine, I'm wondering just like kind of in your, how you feel or how you think that um, taking these steps now and, and clinical research is going to impact the future of accessibility um, to healthcare within minority groups. Like I personally feel like it'll, it'll be hugely impactful to include once we have more diversity represented in clinical research, there'll be more diversity in the treatment options. But what are your thoughts about that? I totally agree. I'm, I mean, on a very basic level, the point of research is to create data that can then be generalizable to our population, right? And if our research studies don't reflect our diverse population, then we can't appropriately draw conclusions and tell what those products are going to do in terms of the people that we're trying to take care of, right? So from a very basic standpoint, the more diversity that we have within research and clinical trials, the more able we are going to be to take those findings and apply them to real medicine, right? On another note, like you said, um, this is a lot about representation, right? So if diverse populations and minority subgroups are not represented in clinical research, then they don't feel a part of the progression of research and medicine as a whole versus if they are then they feel represented they know that people are looking at how um, products or drugs or other medical devices specifically impact them as a group and also as the as part of the population as a whole right goes back to the idea that medicine should be inclusive of all of these minority subgroups and that the progress of medicine should not be limited to one group, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, I think that actually brings up another interesting topic in terms of how we do diversify research and how we do build the trust to actually have diverse groups put their trust into what they may see as an experiment, um, even though it may be the best treatment option available at the time for them. So, what in your experience has been successful in building that trust, be it for regular um, routine care or clinical trials, or is there something you think that we could be doing better? Hmm. I think in regular routine care, it's really about person-to-person relationships. I think that's the easiest way to build trust. In clinical trials, I think it's a lot about education, right? I think that really goes back to the very core of this is teaching people in their communities, right, on a level that they can understand versus having this sort of intangible idea of research, as you said, as an experiment, but more something that actually impacts their communities, impacts their daily lives, and is important for them to contribute to. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we've said it on this podcast a million times that clinical research needs to be a public health initiative. It's just as important as teaching our kids to stop, drop, and roll in the case of a fire. I mean, we never forget those things that we've learned as children. You know, I remember when I was a kid, there was this huge Smokey the Bear campaign to stop forest fires. Um, I've never been in a position where I've even been in a forest fire and needed to stop one. But, you know, I've had plenty of opportunities where I could have benefited from clinical research. So I think it's just important that, you know, we start embedding this as early as possible so that you grow up with an understanding of how clinical research impacts not only yourself, it gives you better standard of care options, but it impacts your community and the world and just unites you in such a way that's so powerful. So 
I think we need to really look at that and how we, we talk about it. And it also aids in so many other factors too. Like, you know, we want more, we want, we want more people of color in science and medicine. We want more women in science and medicine. And those ideals of like what I want to be when I grow up, what I want to do, what I want to contribute to society, they happen so early on. And if we're not talking about these things in an impactful way, we're not going to build those future clinicians, those future scientists. So it, there's a lot of value to making this one of those public health initiatives that starts early on. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think it's nice to see that there's a plan in place. I mean, I know that there are probably many, many research sponsors that are currently in the process of finalizing protocols. And they may feel a little frustrated that there's a new plan that now they have to submit alongside their submission. But it is for the greater good and will have such a long-term impact on not just diversifying trials, but actually putting it in the minds of everyone involved, all stakeholders. And I think that's also been a missing piece so far. It's, it is between a provider and a patient. There is a patient voice that we want to make stronger, and we do want to educate providers and communities. But there are so many other stakeholders in this industry that also play a very big part um, that need to be brought into that loop and need to be aware of how big of an issue it is and why. Um, so I think just from this conversation, it is nice to see that there are positive strides happening in that direction. There are. And we just need to make it a more of, like I said, like, or like Christine said, a regular conversation. Um, you know, there's, there's only so far we're going to get by keeping these conversations between like minds. You know, we're all in clinical research or medicine. And so, yes, us talking about it makes sense. But we want these <laughs> conversations to expand out um, into, you know, just being a part of everyday conversation. I think the, the more we demystify clinical research, the better. Um, and people need to see that these strides are happening um, for the greater good. So, I, I'm excited to see what happens next in all of this, and um, I am so grateful that we've had the opportunity today to get together and chat, and I have to just let everyone know that, you know, Christine is such a rock star. She came here from an on-call shift and literally delivered a baby right before joining our podcast, <laughs> which is just the most amazing thing to me. I mean, I know you deliver babies all day, every day, but it's still <laughs> the most amazing thing to me, so I feel so honored that you were able to bring life into the world and then come straight to our podcast <laughs> it's still amazing to me too I'm a I'm a tearer so I cry almost every time but <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times um in just pass pass through of a regular conversation Christine drops in oh uh yeah well the four or five babies I delivered last night um <laughs> just in passing so if you're a rock star for just making that part of your regular life Absolutely. Well, thank you both, and I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you so much, Christine. Thank you, Sarah, for being the most amazing co-host, and thank you to all of the all of you out there listening. Um, we hope you enjoyed today's episode, and um, please stay tuned for our next episode. And if you want to learn more about the topics we talked about today, um, some of the um, statistics we shared, uh, please feel free to follow us um, on social media. You can visit our website, find us on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We try to keep all of our information um, current on those, those channels.